Hi folks, welcome to Fig Tree Ministries. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel by clicking that red subscribe button below and click that bell to make sure you get notified every time we upload a new video. Enjoy today's lesson. All right, everybody, good morning. Here we are once again, Sea of Galilee, part 15. So that means we're 15 weeks at least, if not 16, because I think I added one in. What we're going to do this week is combine what we've been studying for the past couple weeks, which is the zealots themselves. We're going to combine the zealots with actions of the disciples to say, once we understand zealot, can we then look at some of the actions of the disciples and realize that they're acting a little bit like a zealot? Now, they're not, let me just be clear, I'm not saying they are zealots with the capital Z, like you went and signed up and got your membership card. It's that their thinking is influenced by zealot-type thinking, and that zealot-type thinking then causes them to act in certain ways or have a certain mentality about the way you go about conducting your business. So what we're going to do is we want to bring in those disciples' actions to say, how was it just like they're zealous for the Word of God, and how was it just like that that, they're, that these actions show up? Okay, this is the synagogue at Gamla, and part of the reason I chose this as the background is that all of us have to be aware that these are religious folks. They love God. They love their Bible. They know their Bible. They live passionately for God. And yet, they turn violent. And that should be a red flag to all of us that just because you believe in God or Jesus doesn't mean that you can't turn to violence to try to get your way. And a great example of that, if you all remember in 1994, there was a genocide in Rwanda, 93% Christian nation. It was Christian against Christian. Many of the massacres happened in churches. You know, sometimes that runs deeper than your religion, and we don't always think that we would be capable of doing that. So we have to be aware that they read their Bible, they loved God. In fact, many of them, I think, thought Jesus was the Messiah. But what kind of Messiah did they want? They wanted a political king that would overthrow the Romans in a battle and fight a war. And then you can sit on your throne, Jesus. Well, Jesus clearly wasn't going to do that. And we'll see even one of the disciples' actions of how he may have been trying to pull Jesus into a war, scholars think. Okay, so I'll call this the zealous, that's little z zealous, disciples. And we want to look at these actions to say, how were they at least acting zealously? All right, so here, if you have your Bible, we're going to start at Matthew 10, 2 to 4. I don't know if I put this one on your handout. We're going to start Matthew 10, 2 to 4. And I just want to give you the list. You don't have to go... I know all of you love to go right to your Bible. It's the list of disciples. So I'm just going to read it real quick. We're going to come back to it at least three times during the course of this discussion. 
So Matthew 10 gives us the list, the 12 disciples, or as it says there, here are the names of the 12 apostles. So I'll just go down the list. First, Simon, also called Peter, which means rock, Petra. Andrew, Peter's brother. James, the son of Zebdee. John, James's brother. Philip. Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus. Simon the Zealot, so we know that there's one in the crowd, at least, and Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. So there's your 12 disciples, or apostles, and then as we go through this, we want to say how may they have been influenced, of course, by the Zealot-type thinking, and who may have been acting Zealot-like. Okay, so by way of review, this is what we've done for the past couple weeks as we've looked at the Zealots. And the Zealots, of course, are a movement that technically, well, I don't know if it's technically, but Josephus, the Roman historian, he was Jewish, got captured by the Romans, became a historian. Um, He gives us the account of the Zealots, and he says somewhere around 6 AD, the, the Zealots became the official movement that we know as the capital Z Zealots. So they're first century revolutionaries. They, they want to bring about a revolution to change the government that's in Israel. And the government that's in Israel at that time, Rome. So they're clearly anti-Rome. And one thing we have to remember is that when Rome came in to Israel, 63 BC, Rome did not show up in a new country and say, would you like us to take over and we'll be happily cooperate with you? That's not how Roman, that's not how the, Ro- how, how the Romans did business. It was underneath the boot of Rome that you submit to the Roman government. So how did, gov- how did countries respond to being overtaken by force? Not too well, surprisingly. And Rome came in with excessive taxes. They often took the land if you couldn't pay your taxes. So here are these farmers who suddenly have their land taken away. That was God gave them that land. And now Rome is ruling over you with oppressive taxes. How would you feel? And so many of them were extraordinarily anti-Rome. Now, it doesn't help. If you recall, we've done it a couple times, but last, when we did the Christmas story, part of the context of the Christmas story, that Caesar Augustus was the Caesar at the time of Jesus' birth, and he called himself Lord and God and Son of God and God from God because he called his dad or adopted dad, Julius Caesar, a god. And he puts his face on a coin and call, that says he's divine. And did the Jews react well to that? And then you have your king, Herod the Great, who built three temples to worship Caesar Augustus in your in God's nation. So there's tremendous anti-Roman sentiment. And of course, one of the differences is that the zealots resorted to violence. Not all Jews did. They may have been anti-Rome, but they said, look, God took care of the Egyptians. God will take care of the Romans. Don't fight them. Don't you lose your soul in violence in an attempt to 
get rid of this, this, these Roman oppressors. So you, you can have different attitudes all within believing Jews. All right, and then what the zealots said was, we will not be ruled over by anybody. Only God rules over Israel. That's pretty much the way their, their attitude was. We talked about that last week. By the way, just let me mention, it was the second week in, of Christmas when we were doing the notes on Christmas. I'll put that link in the video, a link below in the description section of the video, that if you wanted to go back and see about Caesar Augustus and review that. Okay, so these are the zealots. Where did the zealots live? Well, if we go to our map, here's our map of the Sea of Galilee. We've seen this a number of times. Capernaum, that's where Jesus puts his hometown. He moves from Nazareth, which is in the middle of nowhere. So if he wanted to stay a little, if he wanted to have a hippie commune in the middle of nowhere, he would have stayed in Nazareth. But he didn't. He wanted to take his, movie right, his movement right out on the main street of Capernaum at the Sea of Galilee. Then you have Gamla, so in that upper right-hand corner on your screen, which is the northeast section of the Sea of Galilee, is the city called Gamla. It sits off the sea. That became the Zealot headquarters. So then, if you look at the, this side of the sea, again, this side is northeast. No, yeah, northeast side. Sorry, I think I said northwest. Gamla is on the northeast side. Is called Batanea or Gaulanitis. Not, it's, not a, uh, it's not a disease you contract. It doesn't mean you have to have one of your organs removed. Yeah, it doesn't mean you have to get your gallbladder removed. It's like the Golan Heights today, the Golan the Heights. So Gaulanitis. And then on this side was Galilee, of course. And Jesus was born in Galilee, lived in Galilee. But it's divided. The lake is divided, at least politically. So between Batanea and Galilee, you have the Jordan River. That flows down and creates a natural barrier and a natural political dividing line. Batanea on the east side was ruled by Herod Philip, the younger brother of Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas was the ambitious king. He wanted to be the full king over Israel like his father was, and Rome never made him that. But he was very ambitious. And so the, the more ambitious king is Antipas. Philip was a rather nice guy. The, the people over there liked Philip. And of course, we talked uh, two weeks ago, because last week we didn't have our regular meeting, that Herod Antipas put his capital city down here at Tiberias, which really had to be a thumb in the eye to the zealots, because he moved his capital city in 20 AD. This was not the long-standing uh, capital city of Herod Antipas. Okay, uh, let's see. All right, one more. So the zealots, they're on that northeast corner of the lake of the sea called uh, where we find Gamla. You have Tiberias. That's where Herod Antipas puts his capital city, as we talked about. And that creates tremendous tension because all of Herod Antipas's power comes from Rome. So you have tremendous political tension going one direction across that lake. And you have religious tension between the religious Jews and the Decapolis. Now, two weeks ago, we talked about some of the recent history that was going on there at the Sea of Galilee, because Herod the Great, the king at the time, this was now 39 to 38 BC, 
using Roman power and Roman forces, puts down these people who are in revolt. And we talked two weeks ago how those uh, robbers, they called them, sometimes they're labeled thieves, but that's actually the zealots. They went up to these caves on what's called Mount Arbel. So if we look a little closer there, you can see those, there's caves all over the side of that mountain. The Romans built these structures to lower soldiers down. And if you and your family were inside that cave, they used hooks to pull you out. And you would fall to your death. That's Herod the Great, the king of the Jews, using Roman power to persecute you. So they have plenty of reason to be upset. Now, who, you know, you can always play that who started it game. Likely, it was the Roman power that came in and was extraordinarily destructive up there in Galilee. Okay, so what I mentioned was from Mount Arbel, the the zealots went in this direction, and they went across the river over to, now, this side of the lake where Gamla is. Uh, Josephus tells us that Herod pursued them as far as the Jordan River. And now we say, okay, so here's where most of the zealots are settling because they got away from Herod the Great. And now you'd say, well, who lives on this side of the sea? And look at this little town. Oh, Bethsaida. We know Bethsaida, don't we? The house of fishing. These are fishermen. And what disciples come out of Bethsaida? Look at this list. Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Philip. So even though they're not capital Z zealots that live over in Gamla, do you think they're influenced by zealot thinking? Yeah, they're not living over in Tiberias like they're Herodians participating with Roman power. So this is a little teeny town. It's like if you go out to, you know, Brawley or something out in the desert here, and these Five kids that all grew up together changed the world. They're the reason we're sitting here today. Um, also, we mentioned a couple weeks ago that what about Simon the Zealot? So even uh, Bargill Pixner, who is a, a scholar that lived at the Sea of Galilee and, and wrote a lot about the Sea of Galilee, he says, look, it's possible. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But Simon the Zealot may have even lived at Gamla if they're labeling him with the name Zealot. So. This is pretty remarkable, and I'll show you a couple more today. Um, Let me comment about this. John and Philip. So when we did our study in Revelation, John went to live in Ephesus, right? That's where he wrote most of his stuff, was in Ephesus. Philip took his disciples and his girls, he had four girls, by the way, and took them to the town of Heropolis, right down the street from John. Well, what gospel mentions Philip the most? John. The gospel of John. Phil is his friend from Bethsaida. And now they all, he's he's part of John's church circuit. Everybody knows Phil. Phil lives down the street. He comes to our annual conference here in Ephesus. Whatever. So everybody knows Philip. And so it's just an, I want you to realize these are real human beings. And when Philip is mentioned most in John, it's because they all know John. His audi- John's audience knows Philip. I'm sorry, knows Philip. Anyway, so it's just a unique little connection. They grew up together in this little town. Wouldn't you write about your friend, you know, that lived down the street? Anyways, 
So these are all of our the people who come, or at least who would be influenced by the zealot-type thinking over there at Gamla. All right, so now what we're going to do is we're going to walk through. I should probably stop looking at the time because I'm already way behind. Thankfully, we started 15 minutes early. Okay, so we're going to look at these zealous disciples, okay? that Just how were we influenced by the zealots? So we go back to this list. Don't turn there. I'm just going to walk through. I want you to look at, notice how Matthew builds the list and how many of these people could be zealot-like, right? So Simon, he's from Bethsaida. Andrew, James, John, and Philip. So notice Matthew's list starts, first five disciples are all from Bethsaida. So those are the Bethsaida boys. Then, if you remember, we talked about Nathaniel of Cana, or Cana, the word for zealous. Now, you look, and you look at that list and you say, well, Nathaniel's not on that list. Where is he? And actually, he's right here, Bartholomew. Scholars connect Nathaniel to Bartholomew. So, Nathaniel of Cana. If Nathaniel is from Cana, which is over by Nazareth, not near Gamla, but he meets Jesus over on that side of the sea, is it possible that he went to join that movement? So he might be, or at least have zealot-like thinking. Then, of course, you have Simon the Zealot. That one's the most obvious. And I'm going to show you today that there's one final zealot-like person, and his name is Judas. And the thinking is that Judas wanted a war. And the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to force my rabbi to fight. And he'll have to overthrow the Romans. And he didn't. Jesus said no. So we'll look at, we'll look at Judas last. But now, now let's do this. How many of the disciples then were possibly influenced by zealot-like thinking? Eight out of 12. That's a huge percentage that would at least have a, somewhat of that mindset. And then, stuck right in the middle of that group is this little guy right here. Matthew, the tax collector. How did the zealots like the tax collectors? I mean, we don't know exactly what Matthew thought of his job. You know, I have opinions about poor Matthew. You know, was he born into this? Because that's how life was back then. If your father was a tax collector, it wasn't like he went off to college and got a degree in accounting and then said, I'll go work for the IRS. I think sometimes we like to, it makes a great sermon if you can make tax collectors as evil as possible, but I'm not sure Matthew was, anyways, that's my opinion. But poor little Matthew, the tax collector, right? You can imagine some of the, the Bible study discussions that Jesus would have between his disciples. All right, so here's what we want to do. We've spent the past couple weeks, this is not on your sheet, we're building the context of what the zealots were like. We're looking at their biblical heroes like Elijah and Pinhas from Numbers. And then you have their historical movements that we're, we're not familiar with. This is the Maccabees and the holiday of Hanukkah that comes out of that when they overthrew a, an oppressive pagan government. And then you have the recent history, that recent history of Herod the Great and Rome coming in and punishing these people. 
And so once you build out that context and then say, okay, now let's look at the, the actions of John, you go, oh, that makes more sense because he's in the context of the first century where this movement is happening. That's the important piece. Okay, so this is what we're, this is what we're trying to build up to. And next week we'll look at Paul and hopefully some of those things that we know about Paul will start to make sense too. All right, so now let's walk through, we're going to walk through three different people, James and John, we'll put them together, then we'll go to Peter, and then we'll end with Judas. So if we start with James and John, and you can turn, if you want, in your Bible, Mark 10, Uh, we're not going to read all of this, but this is a story, it's recorded in Mark, it's recorded in Luke, and it's recorded in Matthew, it's recorded in Matthew different, and I'll talk a little bit about possibly why. We don't know exactly why Matthew records it different. Now, if you remember, what's the nickname that Jesus gives James and John? Sons of thunder. What do you think they were like? Yeah. You know, you think they're outspoken people here? So let's just look now at this little bit and think, are they influenced, if you're calling them the, the sons of thunder, are they influenced by zealot-type thinking? It starts out, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Now, it's been a couple years since we talked about this, but we always want to look at the disciples as closely as possible into the context of first century Israel. and. The Bible doesn't tell us how old they were, but there's clues, and I know we've, we've had this discussion before, and we're not, we can't get into it today, but just imagine that if you look at the cultural context of a disciple in Israel, they're between the age 13 and 30, and John's the youngest. Now, can you imagine if he's kind of a snot-nosed 15-year-old who's about to ask his rabbi this question? Now, I'll show you some paintings in a minute that's going to show you our way of thinking about the disciples, the Western way, and that's how we're normally influenced. But imagine that these two are teenagers, right? Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. If you're a disciple, do you ask your rabbi that? We want you to do for us. We want you to do for us. But just think about what they're asking Jesus to do. We want you to do whatever we, whatever we ask you. Now, that's not customary for a a disciple to ask that of their teacher. And of course, I like to read this sentence in Jesus' sarcastic voice, like, oh yeah, what is it? What would you like now? Are you sure I'm going to do whatever you want? They replied, let us sit at your right hand and the other at your left hand in your glory. What are they asking for? Power. And this is not in your heavenly glory. This is when you become the king. I want to be secretary of state, aide-de-camp, you know, uh, chief of staff. I want to be the most important person. I want power. Is that zealot-like thinking? Or is that just human-like thinking? Yeah, it's human thinking, you know. We want power. And Jesus says, you don't even know what you're asking for. Because where I'm going to rule, in order for you to get next to me, Right? First of all, he says, no, I can't, 
my father's in charge of that business, but I, I just want you to look at what they're asking for is power. And I'll show you, it's not heavenly power because the disciples are about to get upset. And of course, Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I bap I'm baptized with? That's a lot of baptisms. And they say, yes, we can. Oh, really? Are you sure? Because you don't know exactly what's coming. Okay, you get the point. They're looking for power. Now look at the next, uh, in verse uh, 41. How are the disciples reacting to this? When the 10 heard about this, they became indignant, right? Especially if John's on the younger side. You don't put the younger guy ahead of you. Okay. Jesus calls them together. You know that those who are regarded as the rulers of the Gentiles lord over them, and their officials exercise authority over them. That's the human way of doing things. That's the kingdom on earth. But he says, not so with you, verse 43. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Now think of that if you're telling that to a zealot or someone who has power on their mind. You want to be first? You become a slave. That's not going to go over well if you have to be a slave to the Romans. Let's put it that way. Okay, so that's their first little foray. Now let's go to another one, and I'm just going to go through this faster because I'm watching the time. This is Luke 9, but here's the way I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. They're going through Samaria, and, and I'll just read it. Jesus sent messengers ahead who went into a Samarian village to get things ready for him, but the people did not welcome him. Why? Well, because he's going to Jerusalem. The Samaritans worshipped at a different mountain. They worshipped God. Think about that. They have the same Bible. They worshipped God, but they did it different. Have you heard of this? One person says, here's the center of the worship of God. Another group says, no, 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 that's not the center of the worship of God. And now they battle it out. This is exactly the world we live in. Okay, so they're not being nice. Now, what do you do with people who are not being nice? Let's call down fire from heaven, right? When the disciples James and John, so there's the two brothers, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Should we just destroy the Samaritans? Wipe them off the face of the earth? Are they picking up on the teaching about forgiveness yet? Now, I want you to note something. There's a little footnote right here. I don't know if your Bible has the footnote, but the NIV has a footnote. And some ancient manuscripts add this sentence. Do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them just as Elijah did? Now, who's Elijah? Well, he's that fiery prophet that took on the Baal prophets and, you know, called fire down from heaven. And that's who they want to be just like. And remember, Elijah was zealous, and God had to temper him. He said, Elijah, you're not the only one. Settle down. Go call a disciple, make a disciple, and don't think you're the only person out here fighting this battle. So God had to temper Elijah a little bit. Okay, how does Jesus respond to their request to call down fires from heaven and destroy a whole bunch of people? 
Yeah. He, uh, now, the, the Bible doesn't tell us what he says, but he rebuked them. Them. Hey, knock it off. Like, it's not your job to go out and fight every single person who disagrees with you. And when you start getting into that mentality that you have to carry the battle, you can take yourself into really bad places. Okay, that's one extra one. Now, let's go back to the comment. I, I want to show you one thing, and you'll have to read this later. This is one of these strange things about Matthew. So, this is the same story about... Uh, James and John going to Jesus, asking to sit at their right and left. But this time, Matthew says it's the mother of Zebdi's sons. The mother. Now, why? Did it happen twice? Or does Matthew record it through the mother? And that's, this, is, we don't, this is one of those things we don't know. Matthew takes stories, so you find it both in Mark and Luke, told as James and John. Then you get to Matthew, and it's told differently. It's the same exact story. The rest of it reads the same, except for this part. And so then, you know, Matthew does things like he likes to double things. If you read, you know, we talked about the, they went across the sea to the crazy man. One crazy man in Mark. One crazy man in Luke. Read it in Matthew. There's two. Jesus is walking through Jericho. He heals a, he heals a blind man. One blind man. Then you get to Matthew. There's two. Jesus is on the triumphal entry. This is the most famous one. All of the Gospels record one donkey, except for Matthew. How many donkeys? Two. Now, why does Matthew keep doubling that? And honestly, it's like, we don't really know. Until we get to heaven and ask him, what were you thinking? So then you get this. Why would he be putting his, why would he be adding his mother into this? So it adds a layer of, complexity, but here's what I think. If Matthew's going to make a change, or he's going to write it, he's going to tell the story differently, and he adds something like this, it's because his audience will have a reference. He wouldn't do it unless there was something that would be brought to mind. Now, we don't know exactly what it is, but I'll tell you this. If you read out of these stories from the, the intertestamental period, Around the time of the Maccabees, very famous story of a mother and her sons. And the sons, seven of them, get put to death. They want to get the mother, the, the Greek soldiers are trying to get the mother to go against God. And they begin to persecute all the sons in order. And they all say to their mom, don't give in. And so my thought is, is it simply bringing back, the, they're called the martyriums. It's the martyr, martyrologies that come out of that per, the persecutions. I don't know. I just, it's just a curious question. Why would it, Matthew tell it with the mom instead of the two sons? Here's what it says. Grant one of these two sons of mine that they sit at the right hand and are left in the kingdom. Now, if you read the rest of it in Matthew, it's exactly the same as Mark and Luke. So he's only changing who, whose voice that's coming through. And that causes, of course, a lot of problems in biblical studies because you don't know exactly why that's being changed. So James and John are at least influenced. They have zealot-like thinking. We don't like you. Let's call down fire from heaven. We want power. We want to sit in the right hand of the, of the king. Okay, let's go to Peter. This one's even better, if it can get any better. The plot thickens. 
Okay, so Peter. Now, I need to give you a little bit of history here. It's a historical note. During the first century, so after Jesus, there's a small faction of, within the zealot group that are called the Sicarii. Sicarii is a Latin word for a little knife. And if you read, I put a quote from Josephus on your page. I'll show the quote, at least some of it, in a second here on the screen. The Sicarii were a, were a part of that zealot movement, and they were terrorists. They're assassins. And they terrorized the Jews They're, and the Romans, but their people as well. So there's a quote from Josephus. I put it on your handout, and I'm just going to read a little bit to just show you where they get this word. And they begin to be called the Sicarii. So, and then it was that the Sicarii, that's the name of this, they're kind of giving them a little subheading, as they were called, who were robbers, that's the word that's used for zealots, they grew numerous, they made use of small swords. Now, what's the problem with the English word sword? What, do you, what picture comes to mind when you think sword? L a long sword, a sword that you fight with like sword fighting. That word sword, it should be something like knives or daggers, small dagger. They made use of small swords, and from these weapons, these robbers got their denomination, and with these weapons, they slew a great many people. Now, how would they terrorize you? So here's what they would do. Yeah, if you're a Roman and we catch you alone, we'll kill you. If you're a priest, we won't kill you. We're going to do something worse. You're going to live. Did you see The Princess Bride? Have you seen that movie, The Princess Bride? Remember when at the very end, Wesley can't move? He says, hey, we'll fight to the death. And he goes, no, we will not fight to the death. We will fight to the pain. I'll cut off your nose. I'll cut off your ear. And every time you hear somebody gasp at your ugliness, you'll remember. It's, I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to disfigure you. This is what they did to the priests. If they could catch a priest, they'd cut off a nose, an ear, a finger. Then you couldn't serve in God's house. So here's what, let me show you. Leviticus, don't turn there. I'm just going to show it to you real quick. Uh, but it's on your sheet. You can read it later. The Lord says to Moses, says to Aaron, for the generations to come, none of your descendants who has a defect, may come near to offer the food of his God. If you're a priest and you have a defect, are you allowed to serve in the temple? Nope. No man who has any defect may come near. No man who is blind, lame, disfigured, or deformed. To the pain, not to the death. You are collaborating with Rome will take away your ability to do work. You'll be shunned from your priest community. That's to the pain. Okay, that's what the Sicarii did. Now watch Peter. Okay, so turn now. John, you can turn there. I do want you to turn here. John 18, 10 and 11. 
remember, we're building the zealot context, in this case, Sycharee zealot context, and then saying, how are the disciples' actions viewed? Well, John 18, this is Jesus being arrested, and 10 and 11, two verses, then Simon Peter, so now here's Peter's actions, who had a sword, a bad word. It's actually much like a dagger. The definition in the Greek is a small knife that you use for sacrificing, for stabbing. It's not a sword that you swing. So it's a small knife, like a sacrificial knife would be a curved knife that they would slice the lamb's throat to drain the blood. But again, that word sword throws off our modern way of thinking about what Peter has in his hand. He, has a, he had a sword. He drew it and struck the high priest. Now, oh, sorry. He struck the high priest's servant. Now, this again gets confusing because you see the word servant. Well, the high priest's servant is not a slave. It's someone who could become the next... Uh, it's like in a company, the guy who they're going to promote to CEO is the guy who works right along with the CEO. So he's a priest. He's a priest. He's a high priest in training is what he is. So what's Peter doing? He's just like the Sycharee. He's going to take this guy's livelihood out. I could kill you, but I won't. I'll cut your ear off. I'll make it worse. You're not going to be able to do your job. Okay, so it's high priest servant. That's, that's a priest, not just a uh, slave. So it's important to see what, what Peter is doing. Now, let me just show you a picture. Okay, see if this looks like what you think might be going on. Now, first of all, how old do you think Peter is in that? Uh, no offense. He looks, what, 75? At least balding. He's even got like he's got a little bit of hair right on the front. They've painted that hair in the front. So he's looking pretty old. How about that sword he's holding? Yeah, that looks like a, that looks like the Romans double-edged sword that you would use for fighting. So that's probably not a dagger. Now, here's the thing. The, this painting comes from the, the year 1520 in France. Tell me about the clothing that they're wearing. Does that look like first century Palestine or sixteenth century France? Yeah, I mean the the guy laying down, uh, Malchus, who's being stabbed, he has like leggings on, you know, like French style leggings. So you can see how the 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 paintings we we are influenced more than we know by art, and the art is always reflecting the time rather than the the reality of what was on the ground. It's really tough to see. Um, maybe you could see it better on Zoom, but Jesus is right here in this picture. Oh, wait, you can't see my cursor. Sorry. Jesus is, let me see if I have my little, oh, this is Jesus right here. These are Jesus's hands. The reason I wanted to point this out is because in artwork, for instance, here's Jesus. He is porcelain skinned. Because in 1520, France, what was prized? Porcelain skin for, that, for your audience, right? Well, 
for a rabbi who's Jewish, who lives in the Middle East, who spends all day in the sun, do you think he's porcelain skinned? Probably not, right? He's dark skinned. He's weathered, right? The other thing is, and I know it's hard to see on this picture, but his hands look like the hands of a piano player. Not a builder who works in the Galilean sun, you know, who probably has swollen fingers from getting them smashed in the stones or something. So it's just a fun little exercise to go look at these, to look at the art and see how much we're influenced by art. Okay, let me show you next one because this, this guy, this is now 1880s. He does a little bit better. It looks more Middle Eastern. Peter is still old, but not as old as the last one was. The dagger looks a little bit better. And this one, you know, Peter, he's got a nice quaff of hair right there. He's looking healthy, at least in this regard. I just don't know what's happening. It's hard to see this guy as an upside-down face. But anyways, you get my point. This is, the, this is what's going on. Peter pulls out a little knife. There's a couple times Jesus says, well, you know, they say, look, Jesus, we have two little knives. And then many Eastern scholars say, Jesus says something really sarcastic. He says, oh, well, that'll be enough then. That'll be enough to take on the entire Roman army that's stationed over there around Jerusalem. Your two little knives? What are you, crazy? Like it's a, there's a, they have, they want to go fight, right? Okay, so what does he do? Well, he cuts off his ear. This is, this is, uh, this is sickery, zealot type thinking. Now, how, of course, is Jesus going to respond to this? Knock it off, Peter. In fact, in Luke, he says, if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. Measure for measure is the biblical way of talking about you live one way, the likelihood is you'll probably die that way. So, okay, that's Peter. Now you could say that's zealot-like. Now, the one question is, it must have happened because if you're writing a gospel, would you insert a story like that to make yourself look bad and violent? Nope. You wouldn't have done that unless it really happened. You wouldn't make yourself look bad. It's a great comparison, though, because Jesus' response is, knock it off. The disciples go to, or the the gospel writers go to great lengths to tell you Jesus is not a zealot. Okay, let's finish with this, and I know I'm totally running behind. Judas. Judas, and we say his last name is Iscariot, is that really his last name? Did they have last names? Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. Okay, so what's the Iscariot? Well, in Hebrew, in Hebrew, the word for man is ish, that's man. Ish means man. There's a town in Judea, a city in Judea called Kiriot. Judas, Ish, the man of Kiriot. So it would probably read something like that. Judas, Ish, Kiriot. Now, big deal. So what? Well, here's one question. Well, there's two questions. Matthew lumps, he puts Judas's name right next to Simon the Zealot. Why does he do that? 
Well, he's last on the list. We'll go to the list in a minute. Is it possible? Kiriot is way south in Judea. What's he doing up in Galilee? What's he doing in Galilee looking for a rabbi or following a, this movement of, of, of someone who they think is the Messiah? Why not go to Jerusalem and study under someone in Jerusalem? What's Judas? Everyone else. Judas is the only Judean in the group. All the other people are from Galilee up there in the north. So what did he do? Make his way all the way north to Galilee just to get a rabbi? Or is there more to the, more going on here? That he has a zealot mindset. He goes up to Galilee and meets Jesus. That's it. Okay, that's just at least part of the way you might put together that puzzle. But Ish Kiriot, the man from Kiriot, and Kiriot is way south, um, south of Judea. Okay, so look at this. We go back to our list. There's all the, the highlighted ones are the ones from Bethsaida. There's Bethsaida. Then you have Simon the Zealot, and look who's right next to Simon the Zealot. Judas. Now, Judas might have been last because he betrayed Jesus. Also, he may have been put right next to Simon the Zealot because they're both identified as the Zealots. So we don't really know. Again, we'll talk to Matthew when we get to heaven. But is it possible that these two are the Zealots? Now, there's an ancient uh, reference, and let me show you. There's two questions about Iscariot. Is it Ish Kiriot or is it this one? Ish Sicari and Sicarius. There's an ancient reference that mentions that his name is possibly has to do with the Sicari, Sicarius. That you would smash Ish and Sicarius together and you would say, Judas, the man who would be the man of the Sicari is the question. Or the, the, it would be something like that. The dagger man. Sicari mean, meaning dagger. So that's, this is the second way of thinking about Iscariot, but it's not, the, it's not the one that most people go with. Okay, let's finish this up. So if you go back, we're just looking at the disciples. Are they influenced by the zealots? Well, yeah, you have all these people from Bethsaida. Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew is Nathaniel from Cana, Simon the zealot, Judas Iscariot. This is what I think is the important piece. They're not zealots, at least in that movement, but Jesus called people who were passionate, young, energetic, vibrant, passionate for the word of God people, and they were going to have to go out and face down the Roman Empire. And they did, and they changed the world. That's what Jesus is looking for. Now, all of us say, whoa, wait a minute, you know. I got a toddler at home. I don't have energy to run around and be zealot, change the world. I got to do it through different means, you know. I use the internet. It's much faster. He wants to redirect zealot-like energy in order to change the world. He wants you to be zealous to forgive. He wants you to be zealous for good works. He wants you to be zealous to whatever, take care of the poor. But he wants you to be passionate. That's... That's an important piece to this. He just redirects the zealousness of his disciples. What about Paul? Well, we, we talked a couple weeks ago about him, and we'll do this next week. I'm going to show you something from Jerome. Jerome lived in Jerusalem. He translated the Hebrew Bible into Latin. 
Instead of taking it out of the Greek, he wanted to take it from Hebrew to Latin. And he created largely the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate. Jerome lived in Israel, and there's a comment in Jerome's commentary about Paul and his parents and where they're from. I'll show you that because where they're from is a zealot town in Galilee. And so, is it possible that Paul wasn't going to Greek soccer camp as a kid? He was in he was in Torah school, which is how he ended up living in Jerusalem, studying under Gamaliel. So we'll talk about that next week, about Paul's parents. Paul, by the way, does have a sister, so that's another person I want to talk to in heaven, find out what it was like growing up in the household with Paul. All right, so the zealous disciples. You build the context of the zealots and then start reading their actions, and you say, wow, they're thinking just like zealots. But Jesus harnesses that, turns it for good, just like he does for Paul, and sends them out to change the world. Okay, so that is Sea of Galilee, part 15.